Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Now, this is the Finance and Change in Africa series made possible by a collaboration between the Climate Investment Funds, the African Development Bank and the Africa Climate Conversations. Climate change impacts men and women differently. And at a time where COVID-19 pandemic has led to income losses, increasing poverty burden in many countries, I'm joined by Anne Kariakos, a senior social development specialist at the Climate Investments Fund, and Sheila Oparaocha, the Energy International Coordinator and Program Manager, who will be telling us more about how CIF is working to integrate gender efforts, as well as why access to energy is critical to achieving the SDG goals. My name is Anne Kuriakos. I'm Senior Social Development Specialist at the Climate Investment Funds, at the CIF, responsible for mainstreaming gender across the CIF's portfolio of $8.3 billion in climate mitigation and adaptation. And we have seen multiple impacts of climate change, from rising temperatures to water scarcity. How does climate impact men and women in the society? Climate change is a threat multiplier in effect, it really exacerbates the existing vulnerability of the poor, particularly women, and risks pushing those that are on the margin back into poverty status. Um, And we know that women are disproportionately represented among the world's poor. And the difference in vulnerability to climate change impacts um, between women and men really stems from a few key factors um, based fundamentally on their difference in access to resources, um, differential rights, access to institutions. Um, specifically if we think about their uh, livelihoods profiles, women tend to be in agriculture, in natural resource-based livelihoods, more than men who are in manufacturing and services, and so women's livelihoods are particularly at risk from climate impacts, from droughts and floods and the like. Uh, If we think about extreme events from climate change, from cyclones and um, uh, other storms, um, there's a clear difference in in mortality rates that we've seen around the world. Um, And this comes from a variety of um, social factors and constraints on um, social permission, in a sense, to um, engage in disaster preparedness and and just, again, the access to information about um, steps to take in those contexts. We've seen women have weaker networks and and, um, poor access to services. So just to take the example from agriculture um, and agricultural extension, um, you know, in West Africa that um, in particular in Niger, women's productivity is reduced by 19% compared to men per hectare um, just because their access to agricultural inputs and services is less um, and their plot size is less. Um, And this has huge impacts for um, food insecurity and and, uh, productivity. But these factors are not um, immutable. These are things that we can really um, work on and um, directly try to tackle in our operations. And that's what we're doing in the CIF. What is the approach the Climate Investment Fund pursued gender equality goals in support, while supporting climate resilient, low carbon development investment across its portfolio? Well, CIF recognizes that its um, goal of really catalyzing transformational change through low carbon development um, in developing countries can't be achieved um, sustainably without uh, attention to um, the contribution and, and participation and, and really equitable outcomes for both women and men. 
Simply put, we can't um, ignore these gender differentials and expect the same sorts of robust, um, resilient outcomes um, uh, without um, due action. And so when we look at the SIFS gender program, our aim is really to ensure that, um, that those investments benefit women and men equally. Um, and we're trying to see that that work in renewable energy and energy access in forest management um, and then climate resilience really strengthen the socioeconomic security of women um, and enhance gender equality. Um, and we have a goal that defines gender transformative outcomes um, in this program area as uh, increases in women's asset development, um, in their voice and agency, uh, and also in, in resilient livelihoods. And our pillars of this goal, which is really our phase three gender action plan for the SIF, um, are threefold. Um, the first is, is internal, so making sure that our processes are in place to make sure we're um, uh, doing due diligence and, and designing in a gender responsive way and engaging um, key stakeholders who need to be engaged at all levels, um, women and men, women's organizations, um, to really advance the sorts of outcomes we want to see. So that's a sort of internal governance process. Um, but equally, in terms of design, we have both an institutional lens that looks at uh, both not local and national levels of institutions, trying to think about women's leadership um, and uh, governance of resources, their role in planning for resilience um, at multiple scales at local level and national, and their engagement in and the national gender mainstreaming mechanisms that are there in countries. Um, particularly where it's tied to um, national development goals around climate um, and poverty. And then our specific investments, of course, are, are sector specific. They're in energy access, in renewable energy employment, um, in inclusive urban development, um, and productive landscapes, uh, as well as disaster risk reduction, adaptive social protection, area-based development, all these sorts of um, specific economic um, uh, and social, in a sense, investments that are being made across the 73 countries that we work in. Um, and through the uh, robust design um, that uses a gender lens in these projects, um, that we can expect to get to those um, gender transformative impacts that we expect around voice and agency and asset and livelihood development. And we're looking for outcomes really, not just for individual women and men, but also um, what this looks like um, uh, institutionally at the community level um, and in terms of um, market change, You know, whether we see changes in labor demand, for example, for women in renewable energy employment, um, whether we see changes in um, the sorts of um, uh, capital markets and access to um, adaptation finance, for example, um, for women who, who um, traditionally have been left out of those processes. Um, so those are the pillars, the, the institutional and the sectoral um, investments, um, as well as our own internal due diligence. Where do SIF gender efforts fit within the larger climate and development aims of the countries? Well, at its core, I'd say SIF is really a, um, a country-led process um, in terms of uh, a program that is um, owned by countries and and um, meeting uh, the goals and priorities as, as they've set them out. Um, 
And in the gender space, um, one of our early lessons learned was really how much traction we could get if we um, um, specifically tied our gender efforts to the sorts of national goals that countries had set out for themselves, of course, in their gender strategies, but also in their poverty strategies and uh, national development and climate plans as well. Um, all of which um, oftentimes do have very specific um, gender goals in them, um, but which are not always kind of operationalized and, and funded to the um, level that they're needed. And so, um, for example, when we look at the sorts of investments that um, a country like Burkina Faso is doing around decentralized natural resource management and efforts in sustainable landscapes, um, we can not only be supporting that longer term national effort that is looking to scale up kind of green villages across the country, um, but also make sure that those very inclusive participatory processes um, at the local level indeed do include women in, in the planning and identification of sub-projects. Um, this is uh, an effort that requires um, upfront kind of discussion and negotiation, and we're always working very closely with partners around that, um, uh, most particularly um, through our NDB, MDB partners who are, who are implementing with governments. The um, country of Niger, as I've mentioned before, um, also has a commitment to decentralized processes. Um, and there, some of the efforts that have been made around adaptive social protection um, have been very instructive in terms of uh, the sorts of win-wins you can get on both gender equality agendas um, and these larger kind of governance processes that are in place, all the while kind of um, building up um, uh, the climate resilience of, of uh, areas that are really quite exposed, um, being located in, in the Sahel region um, and undergoing slow onset uh, desertification in many cases. Tied to this, there's also national goals around um, sector-specific outcomes that uh, countries want to see. I mean, when we speak of Africa alone, um, there are targets of connecting 60 million off-grid households to modern energy services by 2025, and we know that those economic multiplier effects for women from those investments would be huge. Um, not just the energy access itself, but what happens with that energy in terms of um, both um, productive use applications um, as well as kind of non-income benefits from improved health and, and reduced time poverty of women. Areas like clean cooking um, as well have that sort of triple win um, on gender and climate and health um, co-benefits in that context. Um, and we can see that, um, uh, you know, respiratory illness is um, reduced um, and um, biomass conserved um, through those sorts of efforts um, and investments in clean cooking. Energy services overall, of course, is a huge um, area of investment for the SIF. Um, and when we think of opportunities for women in the green growth sort of area, um, we're thinking absolutely around enhanced uh, renewable energy um, uh, sector employment um, and the uh, SREP program, Scaling Up Renewable Energy in Low-Income Countries program in Zambia in its own investment plan, which includes projects from both African Development Bank on wind power and World Bank on energy access, um, 
does have a very explicit gender focus uh, in terms of looking at um, uh, a, an approach that cuts across the life cycle, really looking from the school to work transition up to mid-career and retention and promotion of women in, um, in energy utilities. Um, and, you know, we're committed to both um, formal sector employment, but also, as I mentioned earlier, all the sorts of um, informal sector um, uh, off-grid and, and small-scale solar enterprise sorts of um, uh, opportunities that are there. And, and, and what role can women play as change agents and leaders in climate mitigation and resilience building activities on the continent? I'd say that um, all too often women are cast as, as victims of climate change, but really um, when we think of their specific skills, their knowledge, um, experiences, priorities that they have um, that need to be brought to the table um, in these processes, um, we want to support their role as, as leaders and change agents um, at local and national levels. And this is really the idea behind our new multi-year effort on women's climate leadership. Um, it builds on um, our experience um, at the local level with um, women working in uh, forest committees, in um, water uh, user associations, and many other natural resource management committees um, and uh, local level planning, um, as well as some of the insights that have been gained through engagement with CSOs and some of our um, stakeholder observers from, um, from the SIF. Um, to really make sure that um, we're thinking about longer-term institutional processes within countries so that um, local priorities are reflected at um, uh, subnational and national level, um, that women are gaining skills in, in how to engage um, at those levels, um, and also that the formal um, infrastructure in terms of, you know, Ministry of Women's Affairs, the line um, ministry's own gender focal points, uh, the focal points of the UNFCCC, that they're all um, engaged in this dialogue that um, has traction behind it. Um, and we've had good experience in uh, countries like um, Cambodia, where they're working very much intersectorally. Um, to make sure that those plans are in place that flow all the way from national down to local level. Um, and that really requires, um, you know, both a commitment to the process, but um, keeping the eye on the um, prize, I guess you could say, in terms of um, the sorts of gender transformative goals that we want to see. Um, in Zambia, um, government has, a um, in its district level budgeting process, has a um, criteria of having um, about a quarter of their funds set aside for projects that have been um, identified and prioritized by women. So that's a very um, concrete example of how these sorts of um, processes can really advance um, priorities that women have set. Um, and our um, CIF um, pilot program for climate resilience projects in, in Zambia um, have helped strengthen that process through um, you know, formal engagement um, at different levels. The other piece that's um, of interest here is not just in terms of sector planning, of course, but what this means for um, countries' adherence and goals um, to their own kind of NDCs under the UNFCCC process, um, and also their long-term um, strategies in terms of low-carbon development pathways. Um, these are uh, efforts that are um, oftentimes identified, but then not uh, elaborated fully and, and um, sometimes difficult to mainstream in, in regular budget processes. Um, and so we want to make sure that 
um, the very programmatic um, efforts and uh, institutional outcomes that are um, being supported through SIF um, are really reflected in these longer term uh, climate investments of um, of countries themselves and the institutional processes so that um, this works beyond any individual project. So, you know, a project may come to an end, but you still have um, sustainability and, and uh, institutional change within countries um, through the networks and um, uh, policy efforts that have been developed over time. Uh, and that's the aim under this effort to make sure that a uh, gender lens is, is fully embedded in all of that effort. And as I mentioned earlier on the show, now we're joined by Sheila Oparaocha, the Energy International Coordinator and Programs Manager, who will be telling us why access to energy is critical for women to achieve the SDG goals. Sheila, before we delve deeper into the conversation, would you please introduce Energia? Yeah, so Energia is an international network that brings together individuals and organizations around a common vision. And we have a vision that women and men should have equal and equitable access to and control over sustainable energy services. And we see this as an essential right to development. We were established in 1996, which was at the backdrop of the Beijing Platform for Action. And you might recall the Beijing Platform for Action uh, was when member states and the international community agreed on gender mainstream as approach uh, to achieve uh, gender equality. Mm-hmm. And so Energia was established as an institutional platform to try and mainstream gender into the energy sector. And uh, we uh, work with partners in Asia and Africa. Our focus has mainly been in Asia and Africa, uh, mm-hmm. but we, of course, collaborate. Uh, we've collaborated with uh, like-minded um, uh, organizations and individuals in the Pacific and also in uh, Latin America. We work with uh, ministries, rural electrification agencies, energy programs to try and mainstream gender into their portfolio, which is um, uh, just uh, looking at what's their core business, what's their operations, what's the institutional uh, setup, what are their processes and practices, and how, where does it make sense? What are the entry points where they can address uh, some of the uh, gaps, gender gaps that we identify, and how they can deliver results? of that so that's one thing we do we Mm -hmm. work with over 6,000 women entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. where uh, we support them to grow their businesses both in uh, renewable energy value chains but also in the productive uses of energy we have a research program working with uh, universities and research institutions to really build the evidence Uh, Mm -hmm. we talked about the advocacy work that we do at the global level working at the UN Um, uh, I am the co-facilitator of the Sustainable Development Goal Number 7, which is on energy, uh, a technical advisory group set up by um, the UN to advise the UN on the progress made on that. So uh, informing intergovernmental discussions, but also at the national level, working with our governments. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's uh, building capacity has always been very important for us. We have trained over 1,500 practitioners in the energy sector on gender approaches, on gender tools. Um, Yeah, so capacity building is uh, is also also, uh, really important. We recently also started, when I say recently, over the past uh, four to five years, we've been working with the private sector because mm-hmm. we recognized uh, that moving forward, particularly when you're dealing with renewable and decentralized energy, 
uh, that you cannot avoid working with the private sector because they're driving um, the distribution of uh, off-grid uh, in our countries and cooking energy. We need to understand um, uh, how they're engaging in the energy sector, but uh, also how we could engage in the energy sectors. One last thing I should mention is that we have also started a gender and energy innovation facility. Um, so we noticed that there were really persistent barriers that we've been dealing with since we started, and we thought we need to think out of the box. And uh, maybe not even us doing it, but really call cool, uh, actors that are not necessarily active in this area uh, mm -hmm. to come and think, you know, tap those mindsets to think progressively uh, with us. So uh, we started the Gender and Energy Innovation Facility, and that's a new area that we have gone in as energy. Thanks so much. And in terms of energy access, we know that it's been uh, remains a large challenge for many uh, countries. Um, and particularly with the question of shifting to renewable sources in, when it's actually factored in. How does energy work to advance energy access globally and in Africa specifically? Uh, we do this in different ways. So, so we have over the years provided 30 million uh, euros, um, uh, slightly more than that, uh, really investing in our partner organizations within the continent uh, to actually uh, leverage gender and energy actions and programs. Uh, so that's, uh, that's uh, one thing. And most of that has gone to supporting our women entrepreneurs in off-grid and cooking energy solutions, but also productive use side. The other way that we've done it is that we've said that, uh, you know, um, we cannot move forward in addressing uh, energy access uh, uh, interventions if we don't have the right enabling environment. And for us, the right enabling environment means the right policies, so gender-responsive policies. So. We've worked very closely, we work very closely with governments and uh, to inform them about what the right policies are. Mm. Um, policies need to be informed. So building that evidence is another way that we try to work to, to do that. Mm. Um, and uh, then, um, uh, like I said, also working with the right uh, market actors and informing them and getting the markets right. Uh, for women's engagement in the energy sector in, in Africa is another one. Financing is a big issue, uh, really getting the right type of financial products mm -hmm. to support women businesses uh, is important. We also think it's really critical that women are in decision-making positions. Mm -hmm. uh, I think since my career, I have met uh, probably two energy ministers from the continent. Mm -hmm. There might have been more, but I haven't yeah. met them. And I think that is saying a lot that we really need to increase the, um, you know, women's engagement and decision making positions um, uh, in this sector uh, across board, whether it's in business or whether it's in the public sector, uh, whether it's in the uh, civil society space, really increasing women's uh, in decision making. We also think that we need to target the youth. You know, Africa, 70, yeah. they say 75% of our population is below the age of 35. Mm. Um, let's reach out to both young men and women to gain interest uh, in this uh, in this subject, uh, to become passionate about it, to join the sector. But even if you don't join the sector, you, you know, energy is enabling all different other sectors. Um, uh, so to engage with uh, with energy access, but also to recognize the contribution that both men and women make in this. So, uh, you know, uh, reaching out to youth through our role models, our public campaigns has also been another way that uh, another way that we have, um, um, yeah, tried to um, 
uh, increase um, that we've tried to steer towards uh, increasing energy access. And I think to date we have been, um, uh, at least through our Women Economic Empowerment Program, um, uh, more than 3 million consumers, uh, 3.5 million consumers have access to uh, energy services uh, delivered by the uh, uh, the women businesses that uh, that energy supports. And in terms of energy access, energy access investments bring multiple benefits, which include uh, through linkages to sectors such as education, health, and agriculture. What do you see as important design elements to make sure that these investments benefit both women and men? So first of all, I think uh, before we actually go to the investments, mm -hmm. investments require uh, decisions. Someone prioritizes and someone decides. And so we think that it's really important that uh, in order to make the right type of uh, energy access investments, you need to get um, the right uh, political commitment, the right political will, the right policies in place. So that's really important because setting that agenda is going, then going to make a decision as to you know where you invest, uh, where you invest, uh, invest your money. I mm. wish I, I don't know whether you know the slogan, and it came out of Ghana: "No power, no vote." Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wish we could have uh, something similar like that. Uh, you know, no vote if it's uh, you know if it's no cooking energy, no vote if we have no labour-saving technology for women. Uh, this type of thing. So I think uh, the political commitment is really important. The right policies in place is really important in order to inform and direct those investments. The next thing is the investments themselves. We hardly, we really need to have much more investments in clean energy in our continent, particularly the off-grid sector and on cooking energy. There's some work that's been done by Sustainable Energy for All, and I forget the numbers, but I think we're falling, uh, you know, way short. What the message was, was that we're falling way short uh, with the type of investments that we need to be making uh, to reach, if we're going to leave no one behind and to reach the most vulnerable of us. So increasing the financing, and particularly increasing the financing for things like cooking energy, increasing the financing for productive uses of energy appliances, mm -hmm. um, increasing the financing uh, for water pumping, increasing the financing for milling and you know agro-processing. These are areas that we find a lot of women spend their uh, time. I think another thing is also investment in uh, in education and capacity building opportunities uh, for the youth uh, and for young men and women to join the uh, uh, to be able to um, uh, to join uh, the energy sector. So let's invest. In vocational training, in tertiary training, but also in business development training of uh, young men and women to be able to fully engage in the energy sector. Uh, one thing I have to say is about digitalization. Mm. Uh, you know, I think that's one thing that COVID-19 has taught us that, uh, and you're in Kenya, we have had lockdowns, I think you've had curfews. Uh, in Zambia, we haven't had the same, but we have had, uh, we, you know, uh, we have had lockdowns. I think there's really been the digital divide. Who has access to, uh, you know, the internet space, to mobile phones, uh, uh, really makes a difference. So I think uh, energy businesses and digitalizing and uh, investing in, in uh, particularly in women who we have found do not really have access to, to the same access uh, as men, uh, to the digital space and digital technology, investing in that, because um, then you can do uh, your, you know, your online banking, 
Mm -hmm. uh, you can reach out to your customers uh, in a different way. So yeah. I think uh, investing in digitalizing our businesses in the space is the, is the same. And investing mm -hmm. in women to become decision makers, sure. to become mm -hmm. leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, also, uh, that's also another area that I think our energy investments need to focus on. And uh, the reason that this is actually a smart choice is that they did a study of more than 100 businesses. And one thing they showed is that in those businesses where they had women on boards, there was much higher return on investment. Mm -hmm. uh, so if the energy sector right now, I think in Africa, we're about, at least in the renewable energy space, we're about, uh, you know, 20%, 25 mm -hmm. percent. Uh, uh in the renewable energy sector, even in countries like Kenya and Nigeria that are trailblazing mm -hmm. uh, on uh, decentralized, we need to increase that number. Uh, we have very few women really in um, uh, employed, but also even less in decision making. So, really invest in women's uh, skills and employment in the sector is going to be is going to be important. Absolutely. Okay. I, I want to um, move into Alagia East Africa reports, and actually, recently, the Climate Investment Funds and the African Development Bank and Alagia, the joint efforts to strengthen gender integration in the energy sector in East Africa. Uh, what yes. were the elements of that engagement and how was the response from countries? Well, first of all, let me start with the response. And I'll just mm -hmm. give an indicator of that. We had the launch of the uh, of uh, four country briefs uh, mm -hmm. from Uganda, from, from Tanzania, Kenya and Rwanda, and just in the East Africa region. We also did this working quite closely, very closely with governments uh, from our energy agencies uh, in this uh, uh, when we're developing the policy briefs. The reason we did that is because we wanted to respond to their needs, uh, uh, to their demands. Uh, so we needed to understand what they needed. And why we developed this is that we noticed a gap that when we're really talking to our po top policymakers, you know, they're not going to read a 50 page report. They mm -hmm. needed to have in a very concise uh, and focused way, what are the key issues? What are key challenges? What are key opportunities? with regards to gender and energy, what is the data and what is the evidence out there? Really based on uh, uh, um, yeah, on the evidence and the data. So this, uh, these policy briefs actually came from a much larger research program. I remember we recognized that the research reports were very, you know, very long and um, uh, for practitioners and for universities and academics, so they were they indeed fine. But for our decision makers who have got many competing priorities, we needed to present to them, uh, you know, um, uh, in a very uh, succinct way, what were the key messages, what they could do to really make a difference and to make a change, and where was that data, and what was those recommendations. So that's what we collaborated on, on presenting these profiles, uh, these country briefs for, uh, yeah, these four uh, country briefs. And I think this mm -hmm. was just the start. What we would like to do is to uh, do it in other countries. I think one of the beauties of this uh, engagement was that it was across uh, three different types of institutions. So you had uh, CSO, Energia, mm -hmm. uh, working at the international level. Within Energia, we engaged um, our experts at the national level that were really people who uh, understood the energy sector, but also were well known to all their ministries and to different actors and stakeholders. And uh, although there were individuals that were writing the reports, they came from organizations that were well established in the NGOs. So you had CSOs, uh, both from the international and national level. We then worked with, uh, with the bank, the African Development Bank, 
which is a, a driver of energy access. But we went beyond that. Uh, you know, these were working from both gender and energy departments. Um, energy, we look at the intersectionality in the Africa Development Bank, we went with their gender departments. We also worked with the energy post, but then we went to climate and we looked at the climate investment funds, which is a funder, but coming at it not just from an energy access, but also from, um, you know, what are the benefits to climate, uh, to addressing the uh, the climate uh, change, be there mitigation or adaptation. All right. What are you hoping to achieve with the policy briefs? Yes, yeah. So I think the first thing that we hope to achieve is that we want to inform our decision makers with the right, real data on the ground. Mm-hmm. as you know what are some of the gender gaps what are the opportunities uh, with regards to them uh, being able to use their energy policies and their energy investments to change the life of women and men on the ground uh, to make those right decisions so that's the first thing i think the second thing is that uh, we wanted to use this as an example for other countries to follow uh, so this was the first, how can we scale this up in other countries as well? Uh, we uh, focused a lot also on working, bringing in our gender machinery, gender ministries uh, informed, to inform them about the energy sector. Because uh, we've identified that that is not necessarily a priority to the extent that we feel should be a priority for our gender ministries. So also to inform them about why energy access is really important to um, gender equality and women's empowerment in their countries and to uh, cut across the divide between the gender, energy and environmental ministries around this subject. So really looking at the intersectionality of uh, climate, gender and energy and uh, uh, bringing that together. So also to just reach out to different stakeholders, it wasn't just governments, we also reached out to CSOs as well, we reached out to private sector actors uh, to also for them to understand what their perspectives are, but for them to also understand uh, why uh, it is important to pay attention to gender, energy and climate issues uh, in their regions in order to, for economic and for social development and for sustainable development uh, in yeah. our countries. Michelle, we are, uh, we've actually run out of time, but I just wanted to actually ask you very quickly, uh, because we cannot ignore the COVID-19 pandemic at the moment because you find there's been a lot of uh, loss in terms of jobs and incomes for both men and women uh, in many countries. But then again, I'm wondering in terms of um, the impact it's had on women's energy businesses and what energy's priorities yes. are for Mitan, does it uh, given the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, so indeed it has had a great impact on women's businesses. We have found uh, a lot of women businesses in Africa also tend to be in the informal sector and uh, fortunately they did not have the safety nets that uh, uh, businesses, it affected businesses also in the uh, formal sector, but the informal sector was much more impacted because they just didn't have those safety nets or insurances to fall back on. So that has really been a, a, a great impact. And with the lockdowns, et cetera, uh, then how to reach your, uh, you know, if you're not digitalized, if your business is not digitalized, how do you reach those, uh, how do you reach your markets? Uh, how do you do your business? Uh, so it really had an impact. What Energia has done is that we set up a solidarity fund uh, where we raised, uh, we raised 250,000 euros, where we uh, gave, um, uh, gave direct investments into the, into our women businesses that um, uh, uh, to try and ensure one that they survive, 
Secondly, to strengthen their resilience uh, towards the impacts of COVID, a, a lot through the digitalization, but also just seeing how to do business differently uh, after COVID-19 uh, COVID uh, and to build their capacity in order to do that. Um, so that was on the business side. We also engaged quite strongly with the policymaking when we were having our COVID recovery uh, packages. Our governments were deciding on that. Uh, one thing that we try to do is to really to advocate and say, you know, energy is first of all a priority for our countries. So you have to invest in energy access. Uh, that was that was one. Health is really important, but the crisis moved beyond the health crisis. There's socioeconomic uh, crisis and uh, energy, of course, is important both for health but also socioeconomical. So we really went and said you have to invest also in energy access and in energy access, you also have to have uh, in your recovery packages, uh, don't forget to focus also on uh, women entrepreneurs and women businesses. Cooking energy is another thing that we said, you know, uh, the home became in the center of work, of education, of play, and women's burden really increased. And one was also on cooking energy, but also just taking care of the house. So we said, you know, energy efficiency appliances that are going to lighten the burden of women also need to be a priority, as well as uh, on uh, clean cooking solutions. So we don't have um, people falling back to using, you know, um, or increasing um, uh, the uh, use of traditional biomass, which as you know, creates a lot of health issues uh, yeah. uh, for communities and particularly for women and children. Sheila, we have to end it here. Thank you so much for your time. I sincerely appreciate you taking time. Thank you. Be sure to join me next Tuesday for an exciting new series on the African drylands. But in the meantime, listen to other episodes by visiting our website www.africaclimateconversations.com or through Spotify, Apple, Google or any other channel you access your podcast. Talk to us via email info at africaclimateconversations.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or subscribe to receive a weekly newsletter by hitting the subscribe button on our website. Remember the financing change in africa series is made possible by a collaboration between the climate investment funds the african development bank and the africa climate conversations until next week on tuesday kwaheri my name is sophie mbogwe